Our scripture reading for this morning is from Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 4, 2 through 9. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the, in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. The book of Philippians is packed full of well-known verses that many of us have put to memory since we were very, very little. Uh, for example, here's a small sampling, some of the most famous verses in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. That I may know him the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In chapter 4, verse 13, words that might be seen painted on the wall of a weight room. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then, of course, the verses we're looking at today in chapter 4 that Josh just read out for us. For many people, the book of Philippians is this very well-traveled path. And the, the magnificent words of this letter have provided much comfort and direction for a lot of people in their spiritual lives, uh, me included in that. However, the familiarity with these words can also provide us with a challenge. You see, the challenge is to see these well-known and traveled verses in their proper context. As we study any passage of the Bible, we must always remember Context is king. The context in which the words are written determines the meaning and therefore the application of whatever it is that we're reading. So although chapter 4, verse 13, those words of, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, they might be an encouragement to a, a weightlifter. Paul did not write those words to a sweaty, grunting, testosterone-filled weightlifter who is training for the Olympic Games. That wasn't who he had in mind. Pastor Nielsen will explain that to us next week. But these verses here in chapter 4, verse 2 through 9, have provided many people with comfort and direction in their lives. And our challenge this morning is to see them in their proper context in order to rightly apply them into our lives. So what I want us to do this morning is to kind of get away from the beaten traveled path of these words and kind of get a bird's eye view a higher vantage point of how does it all fit together? And to help us do that, I want to put one very simple 
observation question before us that we'll come back to at the very end. And that question is this. What do verses 4 to 9 have to do with verses 2 to 3? Why in the world did Paul, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, write verses 4 to 9 after writing verses 2 to 3? There doesn't seem to be much connection between the two of them. I think, though, that if we try to the best of our ability to answer that question of how they connect, what we're going to see is that these verses surprisingly string together like pearls on a beautiful necklace. It's not a necklace we're used to looking at, but nonetheless, it's a beautiful necklace. And so let's look at verses 2 and 3 with kind of that first pearl that Paul places on this for us. Verses 2 and 3 are Paul's plea for peace between two sisters in Christ. And so he writes, I entreat Euadia and I treat Synthache to agree in the Lord. Paul's attention now turns to these two prominent women in the church at Philippi. Women had always played an important role in the life of this church. If you remember from Acts chapter 16, the very first convert in the city of Philippi was a woman, Lydia. Lydia was this seller of purple cloth, most likely a very wealthy woman, and was instrumental in starting this church. The church of Philippi had been graced with wonderful, godly women who were actively involved in the growth of the gospel. These two women were two of them. They weren't pagan women. They weren't women who needed to be saved. They were not walking as enemies of the cross. They were Christian women whom Paul obviously esteemed greatly. He writes of them, They've labored side by side in the gospel with me, with Clement and the rest of his workers, and their names are in the book of life. They were involved in that same fight, that same battle that Paul was engaged in. They were excellent women. And yet, there was something wrong between the two of them. They needed to agree in the Lord. Those are the same words that Paul uses in chapter 2, verse 2. You can flip over there if you want to. But in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul encourages the believers to be in full accord and of one mind. It's the same grouping of words together that he uses here in chapter 4. And so the news of this fallout between these two women had reached Paul in his jail cell. And so in this very public letter that was being read out to the entire church in Philippi, he makes a very personal plea to these women to agree in the Lord, to be of one mind together. We've all sat in a church service uh, when an announcement's being made from the pulpit that there's a car in the parking lot with the lights on. And then once the license plate is red, you realize it's your car. And you're embarrassed to stand up because you don't want to be the guilty culprit. That's nothing compared to what's going on here in chapter 4. And so in my mind's eye, I, I imagine the Philippian church all kind of gathered together. In whatever gathering place that they would normally meet. And they're hearing this very warm very affectionate, loving letter that Paul has written to them. Everyone's contemplating all that Paul is saying. And then with the turn of the parchment paper, the mood changes dramatically. These two women are singled out. Not like Timothy and Epaphroditus earlier in the letter as godly examples 
but being called as examples of people who are not to follow. And as they're singled out, I imagine that all eyes in the room turn to these two women. Perhaps they're on opposite sides of the room, not even able to sit next to each other. And everyone immediately feels the awkwardness that just developed in the room. The room is pregnant with tension. In front of the whole church, two women singled out agree in the Lord. Now, if anyone had fallen asleep while the letter was being read out, now they are awake, aren't they? All ears are tuned in. You can hear a pen drop in the room. Everyone is wide awake. We don't know what the exact problem was between these two women, but perhaps since Paul uses similar language as he does here in chapter 2, perhaps there was some kind of rivalry that had developed between these two women. Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Whatever the trouble is between the two of them, we have to see is that Paul's concern is more than just that these two women now get along with one another. Paul's main concern is that the lack of peace between these two sisters in Christ was damaging their gospel witness in the city of Philippi. Remember, they're actively engaged in the gospel work, but there's a problem between the two of them. And so their ability to shine as lights in the world, their ability to hold out the word of life, through the crooked and twisted pagan culture of Philippi, was jeopardized because of the tension that was in their relationship. You see, Paul's concern is not just to get along with one another. It's concerned about the growth of the gospel. Those outside of the church are often looking over the fence into the church to observe the health and the vibrancy of the relationships of Christians as proof, or maybe non-proof, of the power of the gospel. People are wondering. Maybe you're here this morning wondering, does following Jesus make any difference at all? In the shoe leather of my life, when the rubber hits the road, does following Jesus make any difference at all? All too often, the relationship between Christians are full of the same tension and strife that non-Christians experience. In the words of one author, sometimes our confessional theology does not match our practical theology. And that's seen in dramatic ways in our relationships with one another. And the gap between what we confess with our mouths and how we actually live is like a giant billboard to the pagan culture around us telling us that following Jesus doesn't make any difference. And the result then is that the gospel and Christ are disregarded as irrelevant and powerless. And so I think it's natural for us to ask ourselves that question this morning. Does your confessional theology, does our confessional theology together, what we just confessed in the Apostles' Creed just a few minutes ago, does what we confess about the transforming power of the gospel have any impact practically on how we deal with conflict in our lives. Let me explain what I mean. In the gospel, we are given a framework for how we're supposed to deal with conflict and reconciliation. 
The greatest relational conflict that anyone could ever experience is between us and our creator, God. And in the gospel, what we see is that God moves towards us. He moves towards humanity. And he offers out peace to us through his provided means, through Christ. We can have peace with God because of what he has done for us, because he offers that to us. That offer stands for anyone who will, by faith, embrace Jesus. The one who we offended with our sin moves toward us, not away from us. That gospel truth then provides the framework for how we're supposed to deal with conflict in our lives. We're supposed to move towards those we have conflict with, not away. And we do so with the extension of forgiveness, the extension of reconciliation, primarily because that's what we've seen and experienced in Christ. That's how our confession of the belief in the gospel ought to provide a framework for how we deal with conflict. Now, I know that it's unrealistic to think that at all times, in all of our relationships, it's going to be completely tensionless. We know it wasn't true for Paul, right? In the book of Acts, we learn that Paul had a sharp disagreement with Barnabas over taking John Mark on a missions trip with him. And so Paul and Barnabas split. They went their separate ways. It's simply not a reality, this side of heaven, to think that at all times, all of our relationships are going to be free of strife. Our lives are often full of kind of messy, broken relationships. And so quickly we play in your mind's eye this past week in your home with your friends. Have every single one of those relationships been tensionless? Probably not, right? I'm sure at one point there's been tension. Maybe your best friend is suddenly cold and distant from you. Your brother or sister intentionally kind of presses your buttons to annoy you. Your spouse can't stop complaining about some kind of bad habit you have. Your teenage son or daughter defiantly gives you silent treatment. You see, when these kind of things happen in our lives with one another, our natural tendency is to try to fix them through, through kind of horizontal means. And so maybe we withdraw emotionally from that person. Or maybe we verbally lash out at them. Or we simply just try to get out of the relationship completely. The truth is that when there's a lack of peace in our horizontal relationships, the solution is never found in looking inside of ourselves or looking to one another. Messy, broken people can never fix one another. Our broken and often conflict-ridden relationships can only be solved when we look vertically to God and to the gospel. And so that's that first pearl that that Paul puts on the string is this this plea for peace between these two women and it's a plea for peace for us and our human relationships. And now what happens next in verses 4 to 9 is that Paul continues to show us how we're supposed to do that. How do we look vertically when we're experiencing a lack of peace horizontally with one another? So let's look at verses 4 to 7 because there we see the first pearl, that next pearl that he puts on. And it is the protection of God's peace. The protection of God's peace. 
And that protection comes through four very specific commands that he gives us in these verses. I'm going to read them again for us. And I want you, if you can, to try to pick up and try to observe what are those four commands that Paul gives us that leads to his protective peace. He writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Did you see the four commands? When you see them all as a unit and as a package, they lead us to look vertically to God for his protective peace in our horizontal relationships. Those four commands are rejoice in verse 4. Be gentle in verse 5. Don't worry in verse 6. And pray in verse 6. Four commands that lead to the protection of God's peace. So let's look at those four commands briefly. First, he says, rejoice. It's so important to Paul that he says it twice. Rejoice. Again, I will say, rejoice. You heard Pastor Moody praying about joy in life in difficult circumstances. Now, sometimes it's very difficult for us to find joy. But notice here that Paul provides no loopholes in the command. There's no escape hatch. No backpack on the back with a parachute in it just to get out of it. He says, rejoice always. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter how humiliating or how painful they may be, there is never a time when the Christian should not be rejoicing. But notice very carefully, too, where our rejoicing is. He says it's rejoice in the Lord. And not in our changing or very difficult circumstances. You see, until the Lord comes back, each of us are going to experience excruciating stresses. Mind-boggling interpersonal conflict. We're all going to get sick. We're all going to die. And the kind of joy then that Paul has in mind here does not ignore those difficult circumstances, but instead sees those ups and downs of life as God's way of sanctifying us. God uses those challenging circumstances, the things that come up in our lives to refine our character and to prepare us for our ultimate home in heaven. The joy that Paul has in mind here comes from knowing the truth of chapter 1, verse 6. You can look over there if you want to, but this is what he says in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We can rejoice knowing that what God starts, he finishes. And what he's begun in you and what he's begun in me is his sanctifying work. And so we can rejoice, not always in our circumstances, but we rejoice in the Lord's work. That's the first command, rejoice. Secondly, then, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The best translation of the word reasonableness is to be gentle. That command is directly related to the relational quality that perhaps these two women needed to hear the most. 
It's a command to show each other the gentleness of Christ. The commands to rejoice and be gentle are are connected to each other. They're connected to each other because perhaps the most immediate outward expression of rejoicing in the Lord is being gentle with one another. Knowing that God is just at work in that person's life as he is in our life. Because God had been gentle with them in the gospel, they can now be gentle towards each other. The same is true for us, isn't it? When we're tempted to be harsh, when we're tempted to be merciless towards other people, either in our actions or in our words, we have to remember the mercy and gentleness of Jesus towards us. And so rejoice. Be gentle. Thirdly now in verse 6, don't worry. And so he writes, do not be anxious about anything. That command here echoes Jesus' teaching from Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, Jesus identifies worry as something that the pagans do. And therefore, he instructs those that follow him to consider the birds of the air as examples to follow as those who trust in God's gracious provision. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a natural worry wart. We all remember the story of Chicken Little, right? The children's story. Chicken Little, who was always running around, explaining that the sky is falling, the sky is falling, and he's making it his personal mission to make sure that everyone else is just as worried as he is. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're just weighed down with some kind of anxiety in your life. Maybe you're anxious about the upcoming school year. Anxious about maybe a rocky relationship that you're in. Anxious about your finances and how you're going to pay your bills this week. Anxious about a family member who's going through a very difficult time. If that's you, if you're a worrywart or if you're filled with anxiety this morning, you need to hear these loving words, these comforting words from Jesus and from Paul that are a command to you to not worry. Worry and anxiety are ultimately self-centered. They're self-centered because they come from a heart that says, I can fix things on my own. Let me worry about these things. God, you take care of whatever you're going to take care of. Worry and anxiety rob us of opportunities to trust in God's gracious provision for us. The fourth command there is to pray. Pray about everything. And it directly corresponds to the command to not worry. So instead of being anxious about anything, Paul says we're to pray about everything. The negative command to not worry kind of creates this vacuum in our lives, doesn't it? Don't worry. But Paul immediately fills it in with a command, pray about everything with thanksgiving in your heart. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this. This encourages us to cast all of our anxieties onto him Because he cares for us. I don't know about you, but for me, when I feel overwhelmed by anxiety, I can almost feel choked by it physically. These things rise up in our lives and we can feel overwhelmed. And the Christian response is to pray about everything. Because when we do that, we can cast all of our cares onto Jesus. Because he cares for us. 
Prayer is never a last-ditch resort for us. Instead, it should be the first response to any kind of worry or anxiety that can, can pop up in our lives. So four commands. Rejoice. Be gentle. Don't worry. Pray. And in verse 7, then, if you look over at chapter 4, verse 7, Paul then explains what the kind of the, the gathered force is of obeying these four commands. And it produces a beautiful result. And so he says in verse 7, And the peace of God, after obeying all of these things, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the resulting effect of obeying these commands. The protection of God's peace. Notice that Paul doesn't write, it's the peace with God. That was already secured for us in Christ. It's the peace of God. So the peace that Paul has in mind here is this subjective peace that only God possesses that he can give to us in the ups and downs of this life. Paul tells us that it's beyond human understanding It surpasses understanding. And so there is no method or means in this world to obtain this kind of peace that Paul is talking about. And if you've ever gone through a very difficult time in your life and you've obeyed these commands, either intentionally or not intentionally, you've prayed about whatever's going on in your life and you have felt kind of the the tangible feeling of God's peace in your life. You know it is a peace that passes all understanding. In the midst of very difficult circumstances, you can have peace from God. Well, let's quickly tie this back to these two women. In verses 2 and 3, Paul's pleading for peace between these two women, these two sisters. They needed peace. And their ability to achieve that peace would never come through horizontal efforts to reconcile their differences. They needed to go vertical to God in obedience. They needed to rejoice in the Lord and therefore be gentle with one another. They needed to stop being anxious, perhaps, about their rivalry. Instead, they needed to pray about everything. They needed to go vertical to God in obedience. And the result then would be God's protective peace in their life. Well, Paul has these two women right in the crosshairs of what he's saying. Right? Whatever they're dealing with. But his commands are instructive for maintaining health and unity in the body of Christ. When we experience a lack of unity with one another, either in our homes or in the life of the church, our greatest need is to go vertical to God in obedience and to obtain from him a protective peace that surpasses all understanding. And so these four commands can kind of act as litmus tests for our heart. Are we rejoicing in the Lord always? Or is our rejoicing circumstantial? Are we being gentle with each other? Or are we being harsh and merciless? Are we worried about something that God tells us to trust Him for? Are we praying about everything Or is prayer kind of a last resort for us? The protective peace of God comes as we obey these commands. Well, the final pearl that Paul places on this necklace is in verses 8 and 9. Let me read verses 8 and 9 together. Let me read them for, excuse me. He says, Finally, brothers, 
Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You know, the capacity of the human brain is a scientific wonder, to say the least. There are literally billions of brain cells firing in my brain right now as I'm speaking to you. And no doubt there's billions of brain cells at work inside of your head right now. The human mind is unparalleled to any computer, any iPad or iPhone, whatever it would be. The human brain can process Enormous amounts of information. It's mind-boggling. Our brains are capable of imagining a universe in which time bends to creating beautiful music, to transmitting and receiving a message from God himself. The human mind has an incredible ability to create, to produce actions, and to think. It's unparalleled. The final pearl that Paul strings on this necklace focuses on the thinking and the thought life of these two women. You see, his aim in these verses is to correct their destructive thought patterns. In order to do that, he exhorts them to this kind of elevated thinking and elevated actions, which in turn will invite the presence of God. And so in verse 8, Paul names six elevated thought patterns. Let's quickly run through them. First, they are to contemplate whatever is true. For the follower of Christ, truth begins with the divine person of Christ as the complete embodiment of truth. Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, a mind that contemplates truth is filled with the wonder and amazement of Jesus. Second, they're to contemplate whatever is honorable. The word honorable points to a personal moral excellence. And so they're to focus their minds on whatever is morally excellent and then to aspire to live with that kind of excellent character. Third, they're to contemplate whatever is just. Those things that are just are defined by the character of God. And so they're literally supposed to dwell on the character of God himself. Fourthly, then they would contemplate whatever is pure. The purity that Paul has in mind here is not just limited to sexual purity, but extends to all areas of moral purity in thought and in speech and in actions. They're to focus their minds on everything that is not tainted by evil itself. Fifth, then, they're to contemplate whatever is lovely. By lovely, Paul means those things that put themselves forward by their attractiveness. Those things that are morally lovely or aesthetically lovely. And so a beautiful sunset on the beach to a symphony of stringed instruments. They're supposed to think about things that are lovely. Sixth, they're to contemplate whatever is commendable, which refers specifically to the kind of conduct that is spoken of highly by other people. And so in this year, what Paul is doing is he's commanding them to leave absolutely nothing out which would earn the praise of God or the praise of man. They should use their billions of brain cells that are active in their mind to think about excellent things, 
to think about praiseworthy things. No doubt these two women, while immersed in their conflict, had not been thinking these kinds of thoughts. And so Paul means to correct their destructive thought patterns by exhorting them to fill their minds with these types of things. If you notice, as I quickly scan through all those different kind of thought patterns, each of them go vertical towards God, towards his character, and towards his moral purity himself. If they were going to be reconciled to one another, they needed to have their thought life get out of the gutter, out of the sewage, and elevate their thought life. And so in essence, he's calling them to have the mind of Christ It's incredibly instructive for us, isn't it? Most likely when we're in conflict with one another, we're not thinking about the six things that Paul mentions here, are we? In conflict, our minds zero in on lies, not the truth. We zero in on things that are ignoble, not things that are honorable. When we're in conflict, our mind dwells on injustices that are done to us and not the character of God. We dwell on doing evil things to somebody else. We can dwell on the unattractiveness of the other person rather than the loveliness of that person in Christ. We focus on the dishonorable character of the other rather than on the commendable character of that other person. Our thought life must be elevated which means we automatically must refuse thinking about things which draw our attention away from Christ. And that can only happen when we are not in conflict with somebody else. And so much of these thought patterns have to be developed when we're not in conflict. We have to have elevated thinking before we get into it so that when we're in that conflict, our minds aren't brought down to the gutter. One author calls it the discipline of refusal. We must discipline ourselves to refuse certain kinds of destructive thought patterns and fill our minds with healthy thinking. The time-tested way of doing this is obviously to, to read and study, meditate, and memorize God's Word and to literally think God's thoughts after Him. Elevated thinking. Finally, in verse 9, Paul calls them to elevated action. He says, whatever they have learned, whatever they have received, whatever they've heard and seen in Paul, they should put into practice. Paul's saying to them, do what I do. And I do these whatevers. Paul is no armchair coach, is he? Paul never shouts instructions from the sidelines and expecting so much of other people without doing it himself. He's setting before them, saying, you've learned this from me. You've you've heard it from me. You've seen it in me. Now do it yourself. Practice these things. Elevate your actions. Do what he does. The result of these elevated thought patterns and elevated actions then is seen in verse 9. He says, the God of peace will be with you. In verse 7, he promised them the peace of God. And here in verse 9, he promises them the presence of God. What they needed was not just a theology of peace. They needed the personal presence of God to show up in their relationship. 
I think it's amazing that God designs to give out more than just a subjective peace, but then has no engagement with us. He designs more than that. He designs to give us peace, but then he gives us himself. And that's the greatest thing we need in our relationships with one another. And according to these verses, he gives us himself when we have these elevated thought patterns and elevated actions because those are the things that invite his presence into our relationships with one another. If we're lacking peace horizontally with each other, we need the presence of God, not just a theology of peace. God has to show up in our lives. The only true and lasting solution to those messy and broken relationships we have is for us to go vertical to God. And so how does verses 4 to 9 connect with 2 to 3? I think it's just that. That peace in our horizontal relationships only comes to going vertical. Is there a relationship in your life that needs peace? Maybe you've developed some kind of destructive thought patterns and developed some kind of destructive actions that are kind of wreaking havoc in that relationship, my encouragement to you is to look at verses 8 and 9 and have those thought patterns corrected and elevated and modeled after Paul and other people you see in your life who are living this way. Perhaps there's an area of disobedience to God in your life. You're overly anxious about something, and it's manifesting itself in a relationship you have. My encouragement to you is to look at verses 4 to 7 kind of as a litmus test for your heart. What's going on inside of you? Is there an area of disobedience? Go vertical to God and invite his peace and his presence into your life through obedience and elevated thoughts and elevated actions. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that by your divine plan, you give us more than just a subjective peace, but you give us yourself. And no doubt, Lord, there are many people here that need peace in their relationships. And I pray that these words here would encourage them to look to you for that peace. And so, Father, would you help us to have elevated thoughts, to think about pure and lovely and commendable things, all these things that Paul mentioned. And would we do so in such a way that we dwell on the riches of Christ continually. In his name we pray. Amen.